Hello, hello, and welcome to Dubliners by Dubliners, the podcast where we cover James Joyce's short story collection, Dubliners. We're on episode 14, and this month we'll be covering the short story, Grace, the second last story in the collection. As always, we've got a copy of the story linked in the description below. And if you've been enjoying the podcast so far, be sure to give us five stars on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you might be listening to this. The theme for this month's story is religion. And John, I'm going to hand over to you to kick us off on this discussion. Yeah, I think we focused a little bit more narrowly on the Catholic Church in terms of the theme, mainly because that's what the characters largely discuss in the story itself. So, history of the church in very broad strokes. So traditionally the church was founded by Jesus himself and the first pope was Peter. And so the church started around 0 BC or 0 AD, I suppose. And over the years, as the church developed through medieval times and up through the Renaissance, it became a very powerful institution. And with that power came a degree of corruption. Some of the the ways that uh, this corrupt behavior exhibited itself was in the use of simony. So it was this connection between the church and money. Um, Other things that happened was priests or or bishops or even popes in some cases failing to adhere to their vows of chastity. So they would keep mistresses and and have children in secret. So there was a general um, corruption of, of the church and the institutions surrounding it. Some efforts were made to bring the church back to its roots. Some priests founded uh, devotional orders, so orders that were focused more on what the church was established to be. So you had orders like the Dominicans and the Franciscans who were founded around the 1200s. Um, The Dominicans were a mendicant order, which meant that they aimed to live in poverty, aimed to live by um, requesting alms rather than receiving money through property or, or anything like that. So yeah, so these uh, orders were started uh, with that with that uh, noble aim in mind, but uh, unfortunately, over time, these orders also became corrupted and had to be reformed at various times in their history. All of this came to a head in the 1500s when you see the Reformation, when I suppose the start of the Reformation is considered as Martin Luther's thesis, when he promulgated or published a, a list of 95 theses about the abuses in the church and how the church should be reformed. Yeah, John, that's right. So um, it was a man named Martin Luther who published his his doctrines and uh, famously, I believe, he nailed them to the door of the largest church in his area um, very publicly, I suppose, decrying the issues that he saw in the Catholic Church at the time. This led to the initial fracturing of the Catholic Church and the, the formation of uh, distinct sects of Christianity, the, the idea of Catholicism being the core one an idea that's referred back to later in the, in the story itself. Post-Reformation, then, we have further foundation of new religious orders, the specifically the Jesuits founded by Ignatius of Loyola around the 16th century. The Jesuit order was similar to the other religious orders, the main distinction, I suppose, being its reliance on militaristic structures as opposed to the traditional theological structures that the other orders followed, and particular piety or devotion to the Pope themselves as the leader of the Catholic Church. Following this period, there was, um, I suppose, conflicts between nationalism and enlightenment, and specifically during the early to late 19th century. And I think, John, you've, you've some comments on these. Yeah, I think after the Reformation, you see this, the birth of the Enlightenment movement, where 
there's a focus on science, on a certain degree of individualism, and that came into conflict with the traditional teachings of the church. Um, many of the promoters of the Enlightenment saw the church as, as backwards or as holding the progress of science back. Also came into conflict with a growing sense of national identity. Leading up to in the uh, in the nineteenth century, in the mid eighteen hundreds, where Italian nationalists wanted Italy to become uh, a single country as opposed to uh, a number of independent states, and one of the barriers to this was that in the middle of Italy, the papal states were still ruled by the Pope. So, in addition to the Pope having a spiritual leadership position, he also had a temporal leadership position in that he directly ruled over these states. The Italian nationalists didn't like this because this meant that they couldn't form a unified country in between northern and southern Italy. And so Italian nationalists eventually invaded and took the Papal States. The territory was all taken from the Catholic Church. And it was only later that the, the modern state of Vatican City was, was established when Mussolini sought a degree of rapprochement with the Church. But that's, that's in the future of when the story was written. At the time, didn't, the Church didn't have any land under its control. This time was also important to the Church as it underwent a kind of a, a spiritual evolution and an evolution of Catholic teaching. And one of the key issues there was uh, papal infallibility. Yes, yeah, so within the edicts of the Catholic Church, the concept of papal infallibility is actually a relatively new one, but a very popular concept. At its core, the idea of papal infallibility is the idea that when the Pope speaks on matters of faith, and what is a matter of faith is fairly broad in the context of what a Pope can speak about, the Pope is speaking as if he were God and is presenting the word of God himself to the congregation. And on this basis, whatever the Pope says is absolutely true and instantly becomes doctrine within the Catholic Church. Therefore, any pronouncement by the Pope is considered to be God's law. The key point to note about this is this is a mid-19th century invention. This is not something that stems from, arguably stems from the Bible itself or from the initial teachings of Jesus Christ and his first Pope Peter, but rather a human construction to attribute divine control or authority to the Pope. Yeah, absolutely. I believe the justification is that the Holy Spirit guides the Pope when he's speaking ex cathedra. That's when he's pronouncing on matters of faith, and therefore the Pope is prevented from speaking falsehoods or from lying. All of what we've been talking about in regard to the loss of the Papal States and Papal Infallibility uh, occurred under Pope Pius IX. He's, he's mentioned briefly in this story, and, and, and the succeeding Pope, Pope Leo XIII, is also mentioned he was known for being a slightly more modern pope. He had an interest in modern technologies like photography, as we'll see in the story, and he also wrote some Latin poetry. So uh, a slightly more modern pope um, than his predecessor, Pope Pius. He ruled until about 1903, which is about the time the story has been written. Yeah, there's an interesting uh, point on, on the exact date of his death. I think in the story he's referred to as the late pope, whereas... If the timing of the story is as Joyce intended, which I believe is around 1902, Pope Leo, obviously, Pope Leo XIII obviously would not have been dead at that stage. So there is a slight rare inconsistency in Joyce's uh, sequencing or timing of, of, of these narratives, uh, rare for, for Joyce himself. Yeah, so unless you have anything more on the Pope's John, we might we might very briefly just zoom in on Catholicism within Ireland and, and, and specifically Dublin. An interesting side note here, I 
went onto the National Archives of, of Ireland where you can get the census data going back to the late 19th century and in the 1911 census, which is the last one that they did this kind of analysis for, you this city was made up of 83% Catholics, about 15% Protestant and about 2% other, including a, a growing Jewish presence. So set even kind of eight, nine years after this story, the Catholicism is far and away the, the largest and most dominant religious adherence within the within the country. Um, I suppose as well, just for context, that is a relatively recent development in the history of Ireland. Prior to this, Ireland had gone through what was known as the devotional revolution around the mid 19th century, really driven by a Cardinal Paul Cullen, who as a result of his strong oratory powers, his relative political position and the economic strength of his family was able to bring Ireland forward in terms of its strength of religion. The level of devotion is, is always questionable, but the attendance at mass was, was considerably higher and there was a massive increase in the number of people joining the religious priesthoods answering the call to the Catholic Church, both in the form of priests, monks and nuns. For the context of this story then, what we see is on paper quite a high degree of religious devotion and adherence to the tenets of Catholicism, but the commentary from the time, especially from, I suppose, the key leading figures and religious figures, very much undercuts this and claims that this is a, what I think we now call an a la carte Catholic, or someone who presents themselves to the church but doesn't adhere to the, the core tenets of Catholicism in the, the adherence to the Ten Commandments and the avoidance of the seven deadly sins and things like this. And really, I think that reality is something that Joyce is drawing our attention to and, and, and really trying to address throughout this story. Yeah, another interesting factor of the growth of the Catholic Church in Ireland is that it becomes intertwined with, with politics. We've mentioned Parnell before, how the church's influence there led to his downfall and as well as politics it becomes intertwined with uh, public advancement so we see here in this story the idea that certain orders within the church are considered more middle class and some are considered more uh, working class and so yeah there's a definite linking between social advancement and religion there as well I think that's a broad then summary of, of, of the state of the Catholic Church in Ireland at that time uh, unless there's anything else you want to cover I maybe jump into the plot summary Go for it. Great. So this story, Grace, is broken into three parts. Uh, you might consider a traditional three-act structure. And the first part, we meet the hero or the main character in the story, Mr. Kernan. And he has fallen down stairs into a toilet and he is lying on the floor amongst filth and ooze. And he is unable to wake up. He's passed out. People around him are trying to wake him up and they eventually manage to bring him to life. He is then transported home by a friend of his, Mr. Power. And when Mr. Power is in his home, he conspires with Kernan's wife, Mrs. Kernan, to uh, basically stage an intervention for Mr. Kernan to bring him into the fold of the church and possibly reduces his drinking as well. So... That leads to the second act. In the second act, we see the implementation of this plan where 
Mr. Power, along with Mr. Cunningham and Mr. McCoy, try to convince Mr. Kernan to attend a retreat with them. They do this slightly uh, slyly, or not directly by, by asking him, but by rather saying that they have a plan and then that they're including him as an afterthought, whereas in fact the whole plan was staged uh, in advance. Uh, Mr. Kernan eventually acquiesces, and that leads to the third act of the story where we see the men in the church. And then the focus of the story switches to the to the priest in the in the church, which is a father Purden, and the sermon he gives. And that's where the story ends. The sermon itself will maybe puzzle out a little bit uh, later. Yeah, thanks for that, John. So I think the first thing to pick up on in in looking at this story or or, or in considering the story is the title of the the story itself. Grace has uh, a number of different interpretations. There is the physical concept of grace in that you're physically graceful and, and, and able to move around quite quite cleanly. There's the concept of a grace period, uh, a period of time where traditionally interest isn't charged or you have an ability to augment or change your decision before it's it's, it's crystallized and, and, and thing. And then finally the, the idea of religious grace or of God's grace where you are effectively showered in the light of God and and able to rise up into heaven itself yeah i suppose the idea there being that although you are unworthy of eternal life or salvation that god grants you grace and and grants you it nonetheless absolutely um so throughout this story we see references to the concept of grace in 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 all three of its guises and and we'll we'll flag those to you in, in in specific quotes as we work through it the other thing to to just flag or to note is the structure of this story and the thematic resonance is heavily reminiscent of Dante's Divine Comedy, the um, Inferno, Purgatorio and Paradiso. This is specifically called out by Joyce's brother Stanislaus and there is a number of critical analyses doing a, a deeper dive on this. In the interest of time and recognising that neither myself nor John have actually read the Divine Comedy in its entirety, we've decided to not focus too heavily on that. However, we we may reference back to that. And um, if you're familiar with it yourself, there is quite a bit of digging you can do in terms of finding parallels between Dante's Divine Comedy and the story Grace. Yeah, I suppose even without the direct knowledge of, of the Divine Comedy, you can draw broad parallels in terms of the structure. So knowing that the, the divine comedy starts in hell and moves to purgatory and eventually to, to paradise or, or heaven, you can see a similar sort of structure here where we start Mr. Kernan and he's at the bottom of the stairs, not doing so well. And then we have him in his bed and then eventually we have him in the church. So you can maybe draw parallels there or with, even if not the, the divine comedy with other heroes narratives where um, traditionally you see this structure where a hero descends into hell and then comes out of it and uses the lessons learned in that experience to change how he approaches the world and achieve something afterwards. So it's an interesting structure. And yeah, maybe we'll talk about that a little bit more as we talk about the story itself. Definitely. If any of you are familiar with Joseph Campbell's circular structure for a hero's journey, this is very much following along those lines. As you say, John, if we dive into the story, so we entered to the first part and initially were greeted with, as you say, a man lying face down in a pile of ooze and, and filth at the bottom of the stairs in a pub. Instantly a very, a very grabbing image and a grabbing concept. Similar to counterparts, we're not given the man's name. It's it's presented from, I suppose, this omniscient floating narrator, as I, I like to conceive of them. And until the man himself is identified by other people in the crowd, he remains 
a nameless man and, and, and variously described as the, the victim of these circumstances. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's, it's interesting. The, so the people set out to help him. Um, we, we learn at the start that they're unable to bring him back up the stairs. They only succeed in turning him over. So if we look at this whole narrative as maybe a story about people intervening in order to help Mr. Kernan, maybe we're given the same idea here in miniature at the very start of the story where you see people trying to help him up the stairs, but in the end are only able to turn him over. That's maybe pushing an interpretation on this story itself. So I'll, I'll let that one sit and we can maybe see if it holds true as we progress through the story. Lachlan, what do we know about Mr. Kernan at this stage? So once he, once he awakes, we learn a bit more about him, right? Yeah, this is where our first use of the word grace actually comes in in, in the description of Mr. Kernan. So uh, if I read out the quote here, Mr. Kernan was a commercial traveller of the old school, which believed in the dignity of its calling. He had never been seen in the city without a silk count of some decency and a pair of gaiters. By grace of these two articles of clothing, he said, a man could always pass muster. So there's quite a bit in that quote to, to deconstruct if I can pick up on firstly the use of the word grace. So Mr. Kernan relies on this silk hat and pair of gaiters. So traditionally in Ireland, a and I suppose historically within polite English-speaking society, the idea of a commercial traveller, you had freedom of the city, or not quite freedom of the city, but the ability to go about your business within the city, presenting yourself always wearing a silk hat and, and, and gaiters, was considered within society to be the indicators of a, a commercial individual and a respectable gentleman rather than, say, the two characters we meet in Two Galants, where neither of them are wearing hats or, or, or gaiters and really present a, a counterpoint to Mr. Kernan here. The second thing is his the description of his expression, he always said, a man could always pass muster. So the, the concept of passing muster is, is a very British expression coming from army slang, to mean passing an inspection. And this is the first indication or suggestion that Mr. Kernan is distinct from the traditional Irish heritage and that he has some degree of association with England and with Protestantism. And, and, and immediately, I suppose, uh, readers at the, the time Joyce would have written would have immediately picked up on this nuance in the language that Mr. Kernan is not necessarily a traditional Irish Catholic. Yeah, definitely, and, and that comes out more through the story in, in his disagreements with some of the other characters. Just for those of you who maybe haven't, haven't heard the phrase commercial traveller before, that would be someone who would be a, a representative of a, of a company, basically a salesman who would go around the city trying to sell a, a company's products. Other interesting things about Mr. Kernan, he's kind of down on his luck, and he's literally down at the bottom of the stairs. But he's also, we learn about him that he has lost some of his wealth that he was previously more well off that he is generally not as esteemed as he once was and if we again think to this narrative structure of, of the hero descending into hell and then coming out again we can see that kernan at this point has reached his his, his lowest ebb his lowest point and from here that the whole narrative kicks off yeah you're right so very very quickly though mr kernan is initially at risk of being arrested the manager of the pub summons a police officer um, and actually an interesting side note I saw, it's, 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 it's telling that they instantly summon for a police officer rather than anyone with medical training to support the unconscious man with, with blood around his face. It's, it's the police officer to control the situation and extort law and order onto the situation and possibly to prevent any legal issues later on as a result of, of the fall. The, the manager is first and foremost focused on protecting himself rather than 
the interests of, of Mr. Kernan, but he is saved, arguably, by the grace of one Mr. Power who recognises Mr. Kernan on the floor and intervenes to support him and whisk him away from the policeman before he can ask too many interrogating questions and possibly charge Mr. Kernan with uh, public drunkenness. Yeah, there's a sort of a, an unnamed young man in a cycling suit who also assists Mr. Power there. And they they initially bring Mr. Kernan back to consciousness by forcing some brandy down his throat. So interesting that the, the cure is the same as the, as the poison in this case. So as you mentioned, his main saviour in this scenario is Mr. Power. Mr. Power is described as someone who is, in contrast to Mr. Kernan, is on the rise and their, their arcs meet. Mr. Power is... He's on the way up, Mr. Kernan on the way down. Yeah, uh, Mr. Power is an interesting character on, on, on two counts. If you have read Dante's Divine Comedy, Mr. Power is really a reflection of the Virgil character with Mr. Kernan acting as the, the, the Dante figure. Initially, Mr. Power, we don't learn a lot about him directly from the narrative in this first section other than he seems to be quite a genial fellow, quite willing to help Mr. Kernan and immediately brings him out of the pub, puts him into an outsider, which is a type of cab, and delivers him back to his house, which he knows the address of, indicating that there is a historical relationship of some kind between Mr. Power and Mr. Kernan, or a, a, a degree of friendship between the two of them. Yeah, that's, that's worth noting, because Mr. Kernan at this point is still so drunk that he doesn't realise who Mr. Power is, but we learn yet through the narrator and... Uh, several events that are described that they do in fact know each other another thing in in their relationship is that it's described that mr power knew uh, mr kernan when he was still at a higher point of success and so he esteemed him as a result of that and he also esteems him now as a character which is to say that mr kernan has taken on some degree of eccentricity he is interesting in his mannerisms and this is something that Mr. Power perhaps values in terms of social engagements, in terms of his interactions. Yeah, it's definitely a phrase, it's pretty common in Ireland to describe someone as a character. It can be... I think, yeah, character seems to be generally positive description, but with a bit of a qualification. I think you you always know someone is eccentric if they're described as as a character. Yeah, it's almost like calling someone an acquired taste. They don't slip in so into the normal um, social mode so easily, but they, they act slightly outside that. So this is, anyway, something that Mr. Power values in Mr. Kernan in this case. Moving along, then, we have a brief interlude during the cab ride back to Mr. Kernan's house where Mr. Power lights a match to try and see the inside of Mr. Kernan's mouth to understand the the, the level of damage he's done there. And at this point, we discover that Mr. Kernan has bitten off a very, very small piece of his own tongue which is significant given the context of Mr. Kernan's job as a tea taster and commercial traveller selling, selling this tea. So by losing a piece of his tongue, he loses a bit of the ability to perform his work. And additionally, then, this leads to a number of very humorous words where Joyce has very cleverly presented what it would sound like if someone was talking with a blunted tongue and represented this, doubling down on the fact that it's quite obvious Mr. Kernan is quite drunk. Yes, so it seems to relish a little bit in some of the disgusting descriptions of this story. We have, obviously, this description of the mouse here and earlier, Mr. Kernan at the bottom of the stairs amongst the ooze and filth. So to, to move us forward then, so eventually Mr. Power brings uh, Mr. Kernan home. He meets with Mr. Kernan's long-suffering wife, Mrs. Kernan, and there they hatch the plan to reform Mr. Kernan, basically, to um, stage some, some sort of an intervention. 
Mr. Power comes to this conclusion that he will stage this intervention after having met Mrs. Kernan and their children. There's a, a brief scene where he's a little bit shocked by the the manners of the children and how they carry on. Mr. Power, as you said, up to this point, he seems like a generally good-natured character, willing to help out. He does seem to have a little bit of a an aversion to, I guess, what he would consider lower-class behaviour. Yeah, and I think that that's meant to be reflecting the changing nature of Dublin. I think there's, there's definitely a suggestion here that Mr. Kernan is a, a few years older than Mr. Power, and that, as, as we said, the fall of Mr. Kernan's arc mirroring the rise of Mr. Power's, there's a suggestion that Mr. Power doesn't want to be tainted or brought down to the level of Mr. Kernan as a result of these changing fortunes or trajectories. Yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting one. I think that's it then from the first section of the story, unless you have anything else to add. No, I, th- I think that's it. But um, I suppose one, one, one point to note then, as, as this first section ends, we have one of the rare section breaks within the collection of Dubliners. And um, I, I suppose it's probably worth remarking on it now that this, this story, along with the dead, are the only two stories that contain two section breaks. The, re- the remainder of the stories only have one section break. And unlike the other stories, this section break doesn't neatly delineate between time and place. It's simply a transition between Mr. Power leaving in the carriage that he arrived in and immediately switches to Miss Kernan's perspective as she watches Mr. Power drive away in, in, in the same carriage, heavily suggesting that, that Joyce is arguably artificially reinforcing the idea of this three-act structure in order to drive home the association or significance of Dante's Divine Comedy. Yeah, it's, it's an interesting one, as you say. While we do have changes in place and time in this story, this section break doesn't involve either of those things, so it's it seems almost artificially inserted. The thing it does bring us, as you mentioned, is a change in perspective. So we're now focused on Mrs. Kernan. And we're given quite some information on Mrs. Kernan and her background and her and her marriage, of course, to Mr. Kernan. Their marriage almost directly contrasts with the marriage we saw in the previous story, Your Mother, where in the previous story there was a marriage of practicality, whereas this seems to be more a marriage born out of some romantic notion. And I'll maybe read the quote uh, describing that. So we learn of Mrs. Kernan. In her days of courtship, Mr. Kernan had seemed to her a not ungallant figure, and she still hurried to the chapel door whenever a wedding was reported, and seeing the bridal pair recalled with vivid pleasure how she had passed out of the star of the sea church in Sandy Mount, leaning on the arm of a jovial, well-fed man who was dressed smartly in a frock coat and lavender trousers. Uh, And it goes on. And so her marriage seems one of passion and of interest, but later we learn that what happens in her marriage is that after three weeks, she had found a wife's life irksome. And later on, when she was beginning to find it unbearable, she had become a mother. So in this case, we see a marriage born out of a, a passionate love for one another. But the end result is that she finds the life irksome and that, well, as we see from Mr. Kernan's behavior, that things have not been going so well. For to your point, I think it is something of an inversion of the marriage we see in a mother. But I think there there is an underlying sense of maybe not romance, but love and Similar to a mother, Mrs. Kernan respects and looks after Mr. Kernan when he's bedridden. She brings him food, she brings him drink, she tends to his needs while he's in, in the bed. And she ultimately says, like, he's not the worst person, you know, he's not. He's been good to her since um, the, the boys have grown up. And I think there is a degree of happiness between them. I don't think they're unhappy. I think they're just um, paralyzed, perhaps, is the 
is the word similar to all the other characters in Dublin and, and, and reinforcing Joyce's thought about what Dublin is and what Dublin represents. They are trapped and slowly decaying like the rest of the city, not out of a fault of their own, but simply because they are Dubliners and this is what Dublin does to people. Yeah, that's that's a good point. Joyce's portrayal of, of all the characters here is fairly sympathetic, I would say. So even though we have Mr. Kernan, who, who seems to be a, uh, an unrepentant drunk and is drinking the money of his family away, we do learn these little lines like Mrs. Kernan reflects on him that he would walk to the end of Thomas Street and back again to book even a smaller order. So the idea that yeah, Mr. Kernan is, is dedicated to his job when he believes the opportunity is there, but perhaps there's just Dublin isn't giving him this opportunity to grow, that he is on a downward trajectory, like you said, not necessarily through a fault of his own, but rather through the fact of the city he lives in. So at this stage, we are firmly in the second part. Mr. Kernan is in his bed and Mr. Power has followed through on his original intentions to bring a number of Mr. Kernan's friends to the house to visit him with the tacit intention of, or the conspiratorial intention of getting him to join them on a retreat and effectively what I think we would nowadays consider to be an intervention in the life of an alcoholic. Mr. Power, he's, he's arrived with two additional men, Mr. Cunningham and Mr. McCoy. The description we're given of Mr. Cunningham is that he was a thoroughly sensible man, influential and intelligent. His blade of human knowledge, natural astuteness particularized by long association with cases in the police courts, had been tempered by brief immersions in the waters of general philosophy. He was well informed. His friends bowed to his opinions and considered that his face was like Shakespeare's. Yeah, that's a very interesting quote. You see through the first, you know, 90% of that quote, it's incredibly praising of Mr. Cunningham. And given how Joyce has been treating all his characters up to this point, that might trigger a thought that this is unusual. And you need to watch out here in that the narrator is not necessarily 100% accurate in his assessment and that the narrator is kind of buying into this idea of Mr. Cunningham that's maybe not borne out by reality. You see Joyce undercutting this idea of Mr. Cunningham by that last section when they say that, his uh, friends considered that his face was like Shakespeare's. So it's the the idea that his face is like Shakespeare suggests that they see some sort of knowledgeability in him or they see some sort of wisdom or creativity in him, but that this knowledge or creativity is purely based on a physical appearance rather than something he actually has. So Joyce so is definitely playing with the idea of how someone appears versus how they are in actuality, I think. Yeah, no, absolutely. Presentation and presenteeism is a huge aspect of this story. And I think it's, it's, it's a concept Joyce touches on across a number of different points and, and we'll pick up again later on in, in some of the discussion but uh... one other brief point on Mr Cunningham is that he himself had said that he he married an unpresentable woman who was an incurable drunkard he had set up house for her six times and each time she had pawned the furniture on him so two things about this is one that it lends a degree of sympathy to Mr. Cunningham, that we as readers feel a certain degree of sympathy for him. But also, it's kind of interesting that this man who has set up house for his wife six times and, and six times she has failed to reform, that he is now being charged with leading the mission to reform Mr. Kernan when he, clearly he has not been able to reform his own life. Yeah, no, there's definitely an undercutting of Mr. Cunningham's abilities or, or, or character with, the, with that uh, notice. 
I suppose we also get the character of McCoy. I think it's MP McCoy. We never get a first name for him. Again, Cunningham and McCoy and, and Kerwin and Power all, all appear again in, in Ulysses at, at, at various points. If I read out the description of Mr. McCoy here, his line of life had not been the shortest distance between two points, and for short periods he had been driven to live by his wits. He had been a clerk in the Midland Railway, a canvasser for advertisements for the Irish Times and for the Freemasons Journal, a town traveller for a coal firm on commission, a private inquiry agent, a clerk in the office of the sub-sheriff, and he had recently become secretary to the city coroner. His new office made him professionally interested in Mr. Kernan's case. So we have here a very varied individual, someone who's, who's experienced quite a lot of different roles and responsibilities, seems to be something of a, a wheeler dealer, if you will. And again, that last sentence somewhat undercuts the presentation of him as a friend of Mr. Kernan. His new office made him professionally interested in Mr. Kernan's case. And we see later on then Mr. Kernan is uh, lamenting his own position and the loss of his tongue. And Mr. McCoy says, oh, I knew a man who was 70 years old and as a result of an epileptic fit, bit off half his tongue. And sure, it grew back, didn't it? And there's this idea that obviously this is completely false. That doesn't happen. And Joyce would have had a sufficient working knowledge of medicine to know that this was false. And this is a, friend, a false presentation. But again, everybody just accepts this. There is an ignorance rampant throughout the group. And I think Joyce is playing with that level of ignorance and the idea that these people don't really know what they're talking about and they're just feeding off one another's ideas and thoughts to imagine themselves as greater than they actually are. Yeah, another interesting piece of information we get about McCoy a little bit later is that he has this scheme where he claims that his wife has engagements around the country. I think he suggested she's a singer, but in any case, she has some reasons to travel around the country. And then he petitions his friends for their valises, for their uh, suitcases and, and bags. And once he receives them, rather than his wife actually using these, McCoy's scheme is that he pawns them and keeps the money. Um, and this is this is something that comes up here. It's also something that um, Leopold Bloom observes of him in Ulysses. So. Quite a, a cunning scheme, probably a, a quite a low scheme, I would say, but a little bit funny, I think, as well. This, the ridiculousness of the idea of coming up with the uh, the fake engagements for his wife. Yeah, absolutely. I think to help people here, especially if you, if you haven't read it or even if you have read the story, I think it, it, it can be difficult to keep track of who these different characters are. So just to, to give you a brief rundown, we've got Mr. Kernan. The drunkard from the beginning of the story lying in bed. We have Mr. Power, his friend who helped him out. We have Mr. Cunningham, who is an associate and, 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 and older gentleman than Mr. Power, who is the cunning individual who is really taking control and leading the pack here. And then we have Mr. McCoy, who's something more of a wheeler dealer, who seems to be here more out of his own interest and in what he can get from these characters rather than necessarily presenting a genuine interest either in his friend or in the well-being or the spiritual well-being of his friend. So at this point, the main characters are all in place and they begin discussing the incident and trying to divine what exactly happened. And, and really, I suppose the, the, these first few interactions or, or, or discussions are, are really to help reinforce the, the, the various characters' positions with Mr. Power introducing an idea, being slightly reserved, losing control of the narrative to Mr. Cunningham, who is the more senior the more older gentleman and then mr mccoy constantly piping in in an attempt to 
become the center of attention or to maintain an, an interest. And they, they go through the incident and there's a slight digression about rural policemen and the idea of um, catching your cabbage, which is, I think, a, quite quite a lengthy section. We, we, we won't repeat it here, but it, 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 it's worth a read and, 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 and a kind of a humorous presentation of the distinction that city folk like Dubliners would have had and the level of condescension that they would place on rural people or people they perceive to be of a lower couth than uh, than themselves from from the country and from the rest of Ireland. Yeah, it also plays into, as you mentioned previously, the, the theme or the type of the rest of their conversation, which is to kind of aggrandize themselves or to see themselves as being more cultured or informed than they actually are. And so the, the putting down of the rural policeman plays a part in that. In this case, it does seem like the policeman in question was not particularly effective from the depiction we got earlier, but the fact that they choose to focus on this is an interesting one. And it, it's also a way for Mr. Kernan himself to avoid responsibility, that he focuses on the policeman and the policeman's conduct rather than his own. So if we move on then, so after these initial casual conversations, Mrs. Kernan brings in some drink for the gathered men, and this is taken then as the, the moment where they will hatch their plan to trick uh, Mr. Kernan more or less into coming on a retreat with them. Yes, yeah, so at this stage then they pivot around to start talking about the retreat, and it's all very subtly done with characters making reference, oh, we must remember we should meet at such and such a pub, it'd be a good thing, and letting that hang in the air, baiting, baiting Mr. Kernan to ask more details about what's going on and what they're, what they're talking about. And they drop a hint that they're all going to go wash the pot together, as it were, which is to confess their sins and, and to attend this religious sermon. They mention that it's being hosted by a Jesuit who we've talked about, and we get the, we get the following quote from, from Mr. Kernan here. I haven't such a bad opinion of the Jesuits, he said, intervening at length. They're an educated order. I believe they mean well too. They're the grandest order in the church, Tom, said Mr. Cunningham with enthusiasm. The general of the Jesuits stands next to the Pope. So what you have here is the high-level understanding of who the Jesuits are and what they represent. The reference to them being an educated order is more a reference to the fact that they run a number of the schools and colleges in Dublin at this time. And as we've mentioned it many times before, Joyce attended both Congos and Belvedere. Belvedere College being the one next to the church of Francis Xavier, which is the church that this retreat will be will be hosted in. And then I suppose you have Mr. Cunningham coming in saying, the general of the Jesuits stands next to the Pope. This is a fallacy or a, a misinterpretation or a misunderstanding. So first of all, there is no general of the Jesuits. The Jesuits, as we mentioned, use a militaristic structure in their organization as opposed to the traditional structures of other orders, but they don't officially use the title of general as the, the leader of the organization. And similarly, the Jesuits take a specific vow of loyalty to the Pope himself, as opposed, as distinct from their, their more general vows of loyalty to Catholicism. But what has happened here is Mr. Cunningham has conflated this idea of they're the most loyal to they physically stand next to the Pope and has a high level understanding of, of the nature of the Jesuits and has filled in the gaps himself effectively to to create this and present this as if he understands or has a great knowledge of what the Jesuits are and what they what they represent. Yeah, there's another representation that Mr. Cunningham makes that the Jesuits orders have never been reformed, which again is true in theory, but the reason they haven't been reformed is that they were founded much later than, say, the earlier 
orders like the Dominicans and the Franciscans who were founded in the 1200s. Jesuits were founded post the Reformation and as a result of the kind of response by the Catholic Church to the Reformation. So those orders not being reformed, the Jesuit order not being reformed has more to do with the time in which they were founded than the nature of, of the order itself. And they were repressed or censored for a while by the Pope for their actions involving political intrigue and, and money later in their history. So his idea that the Jesuit orders is some way more pure than the other orders maybe doesn't hold true. There are, through this text, so many of these misunderstandings of the nature of the church or its teachings or its orders. I think we'll go into some more of them later, but I think the key thing to take away from, from all these misunderstandings here is that these men speak with sort of reverential tones or with the idea that they're speaking about this great and grand thing, but they don't really understand what they're talking about and they more just want to bask in the grandeur of what they're talking about rather than fundamentally understanding what it is. We see again the men's ignorance here in the orator or one of the priests that they most admire is a, is a father, Tom Burke, who was an Irish priest who was known for giving quite dramatic sermons that could contain often quite xenophobic content against the British or against Protestant people. He was a strong nationalist. What he wasn't known for was accuracy in terms of the church's teaching. So the fact that this is the priest that the men are praising shows that their concern is more with presentation and with what personally speaks to them or what they find appealing rather than, say, a deep internal interrogation of who they are or what religion means or anything deeper. At this stage, then, the green grocer, Mr. Fogarty, arrives to the house. So, again, this is adding another individual to the, the grouping and he turns up with a bottle of whiskey, which, again, seems out of kilter with everything we know about Mr. Kernan, but I suppose ultimately consistent in the presentation of concept versus execution on ideals and with the idea that people will do what they want to do and that what fits with society rather than what is necessarily the correct thing to do or on a considered or thought through basis. So Mr. Fogarty, the, the greengrocer, arrives and this is where we get the next reference to the title of the reference to grace and it's in, in the description of Mr. Fogarty here. So he bore himself with a certain grace, complimented little children and spoke with a neat enunciation. He was not without culture. So again, we have this idea of he bore himself with a certain grace of kind of physicality here nearly rather as distinct from the social graces afforded to Mr. Kernan earlier in the story. And I think as well then, just a, a quick note on, he was not without culture. It's a very Irish manner of speaking where we tend to define something as the absence of a negative rather than the presence of something positive. And that's a typical Irish language structure that is directly translated into English language structures, but isn't, is not typically found in a native Anglo-English speech. Following his arrival, the religious discussion continues and we see more fallacies. I'll, I'll try to run through them a little bit quickly here. The first is they start talking about the mottos the different popes have, so Pope Pius and Pope Leo and what their mottos were. And here they mix Latin and English in the mottos. But these phrases are, are obviously nonsense, mixing languages as they do. And secondly, the idea that the popes have mottos is not a thing, so popes don't have mottos. But the men continue their conversation as if they do, and they and they get in fact quite animated about pinning down exactly what the motto of each pope was. Yeah, it's funny. I think you can almost see the development of the idea of these mottos upon each other. You see, I think it starts with looks upon looks being light upon light. Then somebody says, "No, it's looks ex tenebra, 
light out of darkness and then someone says actually it's crooks upon crooks being a cross upon a cross and then looks upon looks to distinguish between cross upon a cross of course none of that makes sense if you are blending latin and english words into a single motto and the fact that none of those are even the mottos um i think it, i believe it's it's saint malachy had uh, attributed a sequential characterization to each of the popes and that's what they're referring back to but none of those are actually the exact presentation of the the, the mottos of saint malachy yeah absolutely and this is then succeeded by another misunderstanding or mispresentation of the situation around how the decree of papal infallibility was made. So this decision was made with the agreement of the cardinals in Rome, and so the cardinals had to discuss it and vote on it. Um, And in the end, all but two of the cardinals agreed to it. That part the men do get right, but what they confused then is who they were. So they they believe it's it's a German and an Irishman, and... They claim also that the Irishman, although initially against this decree of papal infallibility, once it's made, he kneels down and yells out, Credo, I believe. And so in that moment, he's converted. But none of this, again, is true. There were Irish priests and bishops who were against the papal infallibility who later converted. But the dramatic rendering they give us here is incorrect. And the two cardinals who were actually the ones who were able to vote on the matter weren't Irish at all. No, again, I think a a lot of this conversation is heavily tied to your understanding of the Catholic Church and and the nuances of the history of the Catholic Church, which Joyce would have been fairly familiar with at the time and and ultimately serves to highlight the half-remembered ignorance of these characters and the unfulfilled promise of their lofty names and, and, and presentations to one another. But this goes on for a while and is humorous but ultimately i suppose does doesn't do a huge amount beyond reinforcing this idea that these people aren't quite what they seem to be or what they want to be and that the church seems to be more than happy to allow this to exist that there is a degree of flexibility and questionability within the catholic church that it flexes and 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 shifts its significance and its meaning even alone the concept of papal infallibility being a modernist invention rather than core to the church's identity and being is a fascinating concept. Joyce is poking fun a little bit at the concept of blind devotion and, and the idea of people being caught up in the in the moment and the idea. And you see that then playing out as following this section where we've we've had the dramatic re-presentation of this credo, I believe, shouting out in a lion's voice. We have the men egging each other on to say look I'm I'm a sinner I'm going to I'm going to cleanse myself I am too and they they all get quite caught up in this moment and you you have a a kind of cacophony of people shouting and and it's all quite exciting the quote here is uh, Mr Cunningham's words had built up the vast image of the church in the minds of his hearers his deep raucous voice had thrilled them as it uttered the word of belief and submission so you've really got this idea of the orator bringing together all these people and, and building up this idea of momentum that is rapidly derailed as then Mr Cunningham says all you have to do said Mr Cunningham is to stand up with lighted candles in our hands and renew our baptismal vows and it's at this point then that everything really falls apart yeah or I don't know if I'd say it fully falls apart but it's at this point that Mr Kernan raises an objection that he doesn't like the idea of candles candles would have been for Protestants, and again, remember, Mr. Kernan was, was initially raised as a Protestant before converting to Catholicism. 
And so for Protestants, candles were seen as being associated with the superstitious nature of the church. And therefore, they had a, an aversion to them. Another way in which Protestants sometimes denigrated or, or, or insulted the Catholic Church was to say that the so there was in around 1870, I believe, a supposed appearance of the Virgin Mary, these some children in Knock, and some Protestants at the time suggested that perhaps the image was created using magic lanterns. So this idea of candles is something that Mr. Kernan reacts to as a result. The other interesting thing about candles in general is obviously candles are a light source and light is quite important throughout Dubliners. We've talked about how Joyce uses, say, the light of, of the day to kind of highlight how the story is moving. So the fact that Mr. Kernan is barring the use of this light maybe suggests that He's barring the illumination or the enlightenment that might come from having a source of light there and rather wants to remain in his, his darkness. But again, this is maybe preceding the, the, the final section of the story, which we're, we're just about to get onto now. Yeah, so slightly different to the earlier section break, we have a, a hard section break here at the end of this candle section, and we, we jump cut to the church in Gardiner Street, where the sermon is, is about to take place. And I think there's a number of really interesting aspects of this section of it. Firstly, you've got the perspective moving to that of the church or focusing on the the priest rather within the church father purden quick note on father purden so purden is the name of a street at the time in dublin associated or i suppose principally within dublin's red light district and interestingly then similarly the altar of the church is lit from a small red light and this red light showers or covers the face of, of father purden throughout the sermon that he gives so similarly, I suppose, tying back to this idea of rejection of the candles and the, these these white lights, we now have everything showered in a, in a red light and heavy allusions to the red light district and this aspect of Dublin. Yeah, and, and again, remember, we spoke before about the, the ways in which the Catholic Church was corrupted. So one of them being this failure to adhere to vows of chastity by priests. We quickly move into church then to the sermon that Father Purden himself is delivering. Before that, we briefly see the men sit in, in the pews of the church. And McCoy here is the odd one out. He's forced to sit in the middle between the other four gentlemen. So two sit in front of him and two sit behind him. And he's unable to integrate himself. Again, suggesting his slightly outsider status. Yeah, briefly, just to just to flick through the names that are, are presented to us as, as the other members or the other people present in the church at the time. You've got... And Mr. Hartford, who's a, a moneylender, and Mr. Fanning, a reg the registration agent and mayor maker of the city. You've got Michael Grimes, who owns three pawnbroker shops. You've got Dan Hogan's nephew, who's up for a job in the town clerk's office. You've got Mr. Hendrick, chief reporter of the Freeman's Journal. And you've got a man referred to as O'Carroll, the friend of Mr. Kern, and, and a considerable commercial figure among many other notable faces. So these people, a few of them have either been referenced before in, in, in Ivy Day in the committee room or some of the other stories or, or appear later on in, in, in Ulysses as well. But what Joyce is doing here is, is really reinforcing the fact that this is the commercial businessmen of Dublin City attending this retreat. So that concept of simony that we talked about is really being driven home and really being reinforced in, in, in this story as we just have all of these people and even the specific commercial activities that they engage in where you've got the owner of the pawnbroker shop, which, again, I think we referenced in Ivy Day in the committee room, the pawnbrokers had a, a, subtle, a subtle role of selling alcohol illicitly on Sundays. Yes, and, and, and not just commercial interests, but also political interests here. So... Uh, the, the the criticism is extending to the, the realm of politics as well with, with the inclusion of the, 
the mayor maker and the man who was up for the job in the town clerk's office. So this idea of nepotism, which was, again, another thing that the Catholic Church was accused of in the time prior to the Reformation and perhaps even here. What's interesting then is at this point, Mr. Kerning sits down, he's, he's arrived, the, the men have all sat down and he's looked around and he, he's seen these people and, and the presence of all these people makes Mr. Kernan then feel at ease. He's no longer concerned so much about, about the whole process. And at this point now, our focus switches from Mr. Kernan to the priest Father Purden, who delivers his sermon. The sermon is a tricky one. It's known for being one of the most difficult Bible verses to interpret. I'll maybe briefly describe the story itself. So it's the parable of the unjust steward. So a steward was set to manage the affairs, the money of uh, a businessman. And he was not doing a particularly good job. And so he was going to be fired. But in order to ensure that he had a job after his firing, he went around to the debtors of this businessman and said, tell me how much money you owe my master or my boss, and I will mark down the amount by some amount. In this way, he was hoping to ingratiate himself into the good auspices of the debtors and, and therefore find a job after he was fired. What is peculiar about this story is that after the, the, the man's boss finds out, he doesn't condemn him, but rather praises him for his shrewdness. And so it would seem that by traditional teachings that one would understand that this man has acted unjustly, the steward has acted in a dishonest manner, and so some sort of punishment should be meted out upon him, that in traditional parables you see unjust actions resulting in some sort of punishment. Whereas in this case, it seems like the steward here is rewarded, or at least not condemned and, and rather praised. And so... That's one of the things that makes it a particularly difficult verse to interpret. Yeah, it's a strange one, all right. Joyce doesn't offer us an explanation in this text, really. The commentary offered by Father Purden then, in terms of what that actually means, is very unclear, and he seems to use it really more as a launching-off point to discuss the practicalities and, and, and almost an accounting-style approach to your, your life, where God is your spiritual accountant. And he opens his books and the books of the spiritual life and see if they tally accurately with your conscience. So my interpretation of, of the story from the Bible is that the moral here is God is our boss and our responsibility is to act in a way that is in our best commercial interests so as to propagate or to continue our own existence where we can continue to serve as God on a macro scale by ignoring, I suppose, the day-to-day. The, the -day. Or, to put it another way, there is an allowance to act immorally on a micro scale if your ultimate purpose is to act morally on a macro scale or on a longer timeline. So an individual sin committed in the, in the service of an overarching grace is acceptable to God. And that is obviously not a conventional message preached by the, the church. And that, I think, is what Joyce is pointing out here, is that the church is somewhat duplicitous in this. The church can manipulate any of its stories to suit whatever specific narrative it's attempting to portray at the time. And that's reinforced here, where you have this very complicated, open-to-interpretation story given to these business people who are effectively told it's okay to act immorally because you're ultimately acting immorally to support the church in the long run. Yes, I don't know if Father Purden's interpretation of the story is, is that sophisticated. I think, as you say, he just more uses it as a jumping off point for 
his own personal philosophy that God is like an accountant. I don't know if he even makes this distinction between the, the short-term immoral act versus the longer term. But I think what is quite apparent here is that, again, we have this superficiality or this failure to interrogate the deeper meaning of something, much in the same way as the characters earlier failed to understand papal infallibility and other aspects of the Catholic Church. We have now the priest failing to understand the sermon. The other interesting way to think about this is if we look at the story from the Bible and reflect it on the story of grace, the story we're reading right now, can we draw parallels there? So do we see that Mr. Kernan is perhaps a man who's acted morally and nonetheless achieves some sort of commendation or something? I think that's a, a reasonable reading here because you see Mr. Kernan, despite his failure to account for any of his actions or failure to repent in any way, he is ultimately uh, helped by his friends and borne up and brought back into this community of men. We, at least at this point, don't see bad outcomes for him. There's not any foreshadowing of things are going to go badly for Mr. Kernan. No, you're right. We don't see the ultimate, I suppose, payoff for this story similar to the boarding house. The, the ultimate payoff for the story really comes later on in Ulysses, where there's repeated interactions with Mr. Kern and he continues to be a drunk. And in fact, I believe it's Molly Bloom references him as, isn't he the one who, who's lying in feces and ooze at the bottom of a toilet in reference to the events of, 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 of this story in case we were in any doubt as to this is the same Mr. Kern and we talked about this ourselves but there's no clear epiphany moment or, or no clear defined revelation where something new is, is, is revealed to us and I do wonder is the absence of that meant to be the revelation that there is no shift in focus there is no accounting for the crimes of the sins of the past by Mr. Kerwin and he is going to continue to perpetuate his own existence there, there is no ultimate change if I can quote the the last couple of sentences here Father Purden says well I have looked into my accounts I find this wrong and this wrong but with God's grace I will rectify this and this I will set right my accounts so again you've got a real clean wrapping up, I suppose, of the ideas of paralysis, simony, and nomen here with, I've looked into my accounts, I will find, I find this and this wrong, but with God's grace, I'll rectify this and this, I will set things right. So you found gaps in your accounts, like a nomen, you've, the absence of something indicates the, the presence of something greater. You have a very commercialized understanding of the nature of God's grace and God's love. And you will set this right. I will rectify this and this. I will, th these proactive ideas, but you haven't done it already. You are in a state of paralysis. You've, you've failed to, to move forward. And also finally, obviously the explicit reference to grace here, the, the, the final time it, it comes up in, in, the, in the story. Yeah, that's a neat summary there. One of the things that is peculiar about this story is, well, I think it's a hard story to interpret i think much like the story from the bible it doesn't present an obvious meaning to us and it's one that i struggled with a bit i think one of the keys or clues joyce gives us is in how he uses perspective and in particular that in the last part of the story the focus of the story shifts from kernan to father purden and to the church more generally and so i think here what we can maybe see is that 
Joyce is telling us the institution of the church of the church rather than the individual men and that this is more what the story is about that the failings of the individual men in the story are more a symptom of this overall failure of yeah so thanks for that john i think that's probably it in terms of analysis of the story so if we move on to our concluding thoughts now overall what did you think about the story john did you like this one it's a good one i thought we had a lot of good conversation on it at least I enjoyed it. I think it is one of the more puzzling ones, as I said. As you go through the collection, the stories get a little less straightforward to interpret. I also wonder if maybe our frame of the epiphany, if it hasn't worked so well in the later stories, that you see this epiphany coming at the end of the story and revealing to you everything that's preceded. It hasn't maybe borne so true in, in these last few stories. Nonetheless, I enjoyed reading it. I enjoyed the journey. Uh, I enjoyed the misapprehensions or misrepresentations of Catholic theology. I enjoyed the kind of atmosphere in the bedroom and everyone wanting to seem knowledgeable but secretly being ignorant. It's, it's a fun one, I think. Yeah, no, definitely. It's a strong story. It reminds me a lot of After the Races, actually, in that you've got kind of a lot of characters talking around each other. Everybody's not quite aware of what the others are doing or thinking and everybody's presenting themselves, relying on, I suppose, the absence of knowledge of, of other characters as well as not having a clean-cut message. or and Maybe that's not fair to say it, it lacks a message, but there's no, as you say, there is no clean epiphany where something is revealed to the characters that they were previously unaware of, so much as almost an absence of that. But I do wonder, is, is Joyce playing around with the idea of a gnomon here as well, that the absence of an epiphany should be the epiphany itself and that he's not going to spoon feed us the concepts anymore as, as as he expects a development of sophistication within the reader of the collection as well as among the the stories themselves or among the individuals of dublin because in some way you can read dubliners uh, as a collection as a guide or an instruction or a call to arms for the people of dublin to recognize these failings within themselves as joyce sees them and to, to to attempt to rectify them there's definitely criticism of dublin here I suppose that the framework of the epiphany, it almost turns the stories into something like a fable, where there's a clean moral message you can take out of it. It maybe makes them a little too simplified, and particularly as the stories later in the collection, and Joyce turns his focus more to society at large. There's a lot he wants to say. He wants to take shots at a lot of different people, a lot of different institutions. So I think it is harder to break things down into a single message. I also think it's a mistake, even in the earlier stories, to try and focus in too narrowly. Although I do think these epiphany moments help illuminate the stories. But yeah, so you enjoyed it then? or Yeah, I did. One thing that I thought reading through it and it, it terrified me was, I think if you were to write this today, it would be a podcast. I can just picture four guys sitting talking nonsense and half-remembered quotes and half-baked ideas about lofty moral or social phenomena and just talking back and forth amongst each other. And that was a slightly meta-terrifying idea that is that what Joyce is needling there is the idea of your own arrogance and your own self-belief. But I don't think that Joyce was preemptively taking shots at scholars a hundred years from now, misinterpreting his own works, but who knows? Yeah, I guess it's a common human experience we all say things that 
we don't fully know sometimes projecting an air of confidence more than we actually feel inside and so in that regard it's, it's quite a universal experience i wonder if the invention of internet and smartphones has prevented some of this but i'm sure you could still hear similar conversations going on in a lot of pubs around ireland now so i think that wraps us up then for this month's episode next month we have the dead which is a more of a novella than a short story and so we'll hopefully have an interesting approach to that one for you all until then i've been john Feather. i've been locking going thanks very much for listening thank you bye-bye